Welcome to Being the That. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, we invite a guest or guests to share with us their experiences about thriving in white spaces. The Black Doula Project says, as its mission, every Black parent deserves the right to be safe and healthy and an informed pregnancy each step of the way. But we also know that Systemic racism is present in medical systems, which is the first system that most of us experience coming into this world. Recently, there's been quite a bit of attention on Black pregnant people being the most likely to die from pregnancy-related complications to the rate of three to four times that of white mothers. One of the answers to this issue is affinity and being with our own people and a movement that has grown, is growing, will grow among our community, our Black doulas. Today, we have two women to share their experiences of being a Black doula and how they have thrived in the white space of doulaship as well as the medical system. Our guests today are changing the lives of African-American women and Black maternal health, one woman at a time. Dr. Kanika Harris is a behavioral specialist scientist with over 15 years of experience working in academia, nonprofit, government, and philanthropic sectors. She has worked at the intersections of reproductive health, women's health, HIV AIDS, and population health with a strong emphasis on health equity. She possesses a wealth of experience in social determinants of health and brings a social justice lens to investigating current cultural health issues. Dr. Harris currently serves as the Director of Maternal Health for the Black Women's Health Imperative. She serves as the public health expert for the DC Mayor's Lactation Commission and the Maternal Health Equity Advisor for the state of Maryland. Dr. Harris received her doctoral degree in health behavior and health education from the University of Michigan. She has also received her master's in public health with a concentration in international health from Morehouse College of Medicine. Our next guest, Mavu Hartgrove, is a first-generation Zimbabwean American mother of four, grandmother, and wife. She has been an educator in an African center school for 19 years and has offered Ban Kamusa services in her community for 12 years and has been working as a postpartum doula for over a year. Blacktivists, home birth, and natural childbirth evangelists are also other labels that she embraces. Please welcome to the podcast by Amavo Hargrove and Dr. Kanika Harris. Woohoo! Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Why don't we just start kind of with your journey to becoming a doula and how you got started? You want to go ahead first, Kanika? Sure. Um, I became a doula in 2006. Which makes her an OG, if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I got my doula training in 2006 from Dona International in Ann Arbor um, Mm -hmm. while I was doing my PhD program. It was something I stumbled 
pond, didn't know what a doula was. I was taking a class in the, in the nurse midwifery school. Um, it was just an elective class I was taking. I can't even remember the name of the class, but um, my teacher brought up doulas. She's a midwife and she brought up doulas and she talked about, you know, taking doulas to Honduras. And I was just like, doula, what is that? And so when she told me what it was, I immediately said to myself, that's me. How do I train? And she told me about a training that weekend. I took the training. Mind you, I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I was the only Black female of many white housewives, I would say. Most of them mm. were not working or they were looking for like a second career. Sure. Um, and so I was the only Black person in that space. To contextualize it just a little bit, Ann Arbor, Michigan is very, um, is white and affluent, which is a different kind of white, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. White, liberal, small town. So I, it, it was just interesting being introduced in that way mm-hmm. and knowing that this belongs to me, but trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very in a very white space. Um, what saved me was that there was a program connected to it, a volunteer program called Doula's Care. So that was to connect um, women who needed doulas to volunteer doulas. And of course, to get your certification, you need a certain amount of volunteer hours as a doula. Um, it was very easy for me to get those hours because no one wanted to go to Detroit right? No one wanted to travel to Detroit and help Black moms. They were nervous and scared about going, getting a call at one in the morning and going to Detroit. So for me, that was it. I was that Black doula doing many, many births at um, hospitals in Detroit, um, helping Black moms. And in the midst of a PhD program that felt so invalidating, I got so much validation and healing from working with Black moms in that way. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. So what about you, Mavo? I think um, I think my journey is very different from Kanika's. I don't remember not being a doula. Mm. So um, the, and, and for me, my passion is very much postpartum work. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe. And one of the things that happens in Zimbabwe is that um, we give a lot of help to women who've just had a baby. And you start giving that help probably from the age of about eight. So um, part of our, I guess, informal rites of passage is when a girl is between eight and 13 years old, people will actually send her to the home of somebody who's had a baby. And so for me, it was my first baby was probably um, my aunt's my aunt's last birth and I actually I went to stay with her for the school holidays which was two months and during that time you're learning everything that you need to learn about a baby you're helping to care for the mother and it just goes on from there we all kind of gather and help anyone in the family who's having a baby but specifically you're usually assigned to your mother's younger sister we call that your your my nini Mm. because your mom's younger sister is going to be having babies that are younger younger than you that you can help with. So um, fast forward much later, I moved to um, the DC area, the DMV and married an African-American. And he's part of a very kind of vibrant um, community, African-centered community. 
and there and a school and there are a lot of moms and a lot of babies and we kind of help each other and I guess because of my background in Zimbabwe of helping with mothers and babies and so on I was very drawn to that and um helped a lot of moms within our community then about I think it was 2018 Kanika I decided that I wanted to formalize and did also um, train with um, Dona as a postpartum doula. And that's when I started formally working as a postpartum doula, but I've always done it. That's amazing. Well, what I love about both of your um, journeys is that both of them are organic in their own ways. That one is you serendipitously um, stumbled upon becoming a doula and one you were a doula basically your whole life. So what what do you believe are, when you think about um, Black women and maternal health and um, managing medical systems, what's your belief about how doulas might be helpful in that and particularly how Black doulas can be helpful in that process? Um, navigating the hospital system? Yeah, I think so. So... We have a lot of gaps in, in just um, medical care, especially when it comes to women, Black women, all women. And historically that, you know, we have changed something that's very sacred into a business model. Mm. In that, you are going to miss the entire holistic picture of how moms and babies need to be treated, not only to just survive, but to thrive as parents. Um, and so the doula model really allows for um, professional, skilled professionals to come in and fill those gaps. As Mavu said, if we were living in at least a traditional African society, these things will already be woven into our culture, into what we do. We wouldn't be learning about birth when we become pregnant, right? It would be like throughout our life courses, my boo was talking about that we would have this knowledge, but we're in these situations where all of a sudden this information is fragmented and fractured and you're not getting it until you're pregnant. So that's a lot to learn and navigate as well as a hospital system, as well as a pregnancy when your body's changing, hormones are changing. Um, and doulas really help to answer your questions, give you that information, give you the support, help you navigate your doctor's visits, help you to make decisions of whether, hey, maybe you need to switch physicians or maybe, you know, how do how are you going to listen to your gut to decide whether this is a good decision or not? And, you know, give, give their clients key questions to help them make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we're not really in a position to make decisions for our clients, but we can definitely create a framework and a structure. For example, I always ask, tell my clients, you know, when the doctors are rushing in and they're trying to make them make these decisions immediately, I will say, ask that doctor, am I okay? And is my baby okay right now? If that's the answer, then I need some more time to make a decision. Like you don't have to make that decision right now on someone else's clock. So those are the kind of tools we can put in place mm -hmm. to help them navigate that process. Um, and then Mavu talked about postpartum and I will let her talk about the postpartum journey more, but 
um, postpartum is so important because when we're looking at maternal mortality, we're looking at a woman that dies within that first year. A lot of times we're conceptualizing as a woman that dies during childbirth, but she has up to one year to pass away. Mm. Category of maternal mortality. Most deaths are happening within 40 days after a woman gets, gets birth. So that means it's happening during that postpartum period that we're mm-hmm. um, But yet in this country, we don't really have a way that we take care of moms postpartum well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have a, an appropriate system of care. Um, we're just now getting to the point where moms are eligible to have Medicaid coverage for up to a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and states can decide whether they want to um, use that or not. And states that have, and many states that need need to get on board with that. Um, so just to think that moms are only covered for postpartum care for up to six weeks after their birth, but they could die after that. Sure. They don't have any coverage. Um, and so just how to navigate all those things. No one tells you about postpartum until you're in postpartum, right? There's no talk about the postpartum period, what happens to your body after you give birth in your prenatal visits with your doctor, you know, you'll take childbirth education classes. There's little emphasis on what happens postpartum. And so you're kind of thrown into this new area and you know nothing about what's happening to your body no one's explained that to you and physicians don't get any training on lactation okay um those are those are specialists they get very little training on nutrition so there's just really no support to help that mom feel Mm -hmm. whole and complete again and be able to support this new baby um and so that's where the doula model and even the midwifery model of care is becoming essential to saving moms and babies' lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mabu, did you want to jump in here? Thanks, Kanika. Yes. Um, I, I think the postpartum period is important because of what Kanika said. It's a very delicate balance. I think um, when we give birth, we're kind of at um, standing at the bridge, right? You're on the one, one side of life or the other. So when we usher in life, we kind of have a foot in the grave, so to speak, ourselves, if we're not cared for properly. I do believe that um, motherhood and mothers are sacred. And if we treat mothers as sacred um, and give them the space, as in if we take care of a mother and her body, then a mother is then able to take care of her child. Because when your focus is your child, you need somebody's focus to be on you. Mm. Um, I think about when my own daughter gave birth, her partner was in the room and I told him, you go stand with the baby so I can watch my baby, right? So a woman is also somebody's baby. We have to take care of her so she can take care of her baby. The problem with the systems that we have in America is nobody's watching the mother, Mm-hmm. You know, even when you when you have visits and so on, the focus is so much on the child. And I think as a postpartum doula, that's what my aim to do is um, to focus on the mother, not just focus on her, but um, to be her reflection and her echo. Because I think mothers inherently know what they need and what their babies need. 
But sometimes you need, so in Zimbabwe, when something happens, you say to somebody, come and see for me or come and listen for me. And so sometimes that's what a new mother needs. She'll be feeling a certain way in her body. She needs to say it so that I can echo it so we can do something about it. But when you're in that lonely space after you've had a baby, especially if it's your first baby, if you don't have that validation, um, it's easy for you to ignore yourself and for others mm -hmm. to ignore you. And that's so, mm -hmm. it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous because mm -hmm. there's so many things that can go wrong um, right after you have a baby. So you just said something that really struck me. It was to reflect and that the job is to reflect in something. The new and to echo. To reflect. And, and that's beautiful. Um, I think that most of us need that for our whole lives, but certainly uh, during a period where you are pretty vulnerable. Mm. You know what? I, I think we almost probably need to roll back a few steps and just talk just basics about how the work of doulas and midwives and how can they be helpful what do they do exactly that kind of thing because i'm willing to bet that um most people that are listening may or may not know that mm -hmm. um so there's distinct difference between midwives and doulas you heard me say mid midwifery model of care mm -hmm. um, and when i say that what I mean is that that model of care really um, is looking at the whole family, whole mom, from that, a continuum of care from even um, preconception, mm -hmm. postpartum, right? Mm -hmm. um, and midwives can, there's, there's two types of midwives. So there's um, certified nurse midwives. So that means that they went to school and got their degree in nursing and then um, got their midwifery training as well. And then there's um, certified professional midwives that those are midwives that are um, that are certified through other midwives and they follow a practicum of experience to become certified. Mm -hmm. And so that's a different form of training. Both are you know, equally as important, two different paths. Um, both work in providing um, OB visits, pre, uh, birth, you know, can birth your child for you, postpartum visits, and um, they are clinical practitioners. So they can do the clinical medical side of delivering babies. They work within what's considered a normal birth meaning that um, they usually don't deliver multiples. They cannot work with you if you are high risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to be pre presenting like a normal singleton birth. Okay. Um, doulas are non-clinical support. They don't do anything clinical. Um, they are not checking you. They are not like doing anything involving needles, blood, anything like that. So doulas are really providing you with physical support, you know, lifting you, massaging you, supporting you in those ways, um, advice, logistical support and informational support, emotional support. So doulas handle the non-clinical support side. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Did you want to add anything to that, Marlo? Um, Yes, I think um, a, for a postpartum doula, I think... Um, 
it is emotional support, like Anika said, and educational support. I like to think that for the women that I work with, that I want to sort of be a a library and a support system. So for example, if somebody wants to breastfeed their baby, I'm trying to have as much information as I can to share with that mother from um, good sources. If mother decides to formula feed, I want to have as much information as I can about that. And also to kind of find out what the mother, what the family needs and encourage them in understanding that they're the best people to care for their child. Um, but then also looking out for things that are not falling within the realm of normal so that I can suggest that they go and help get some mm -hmm. professional or clinical help. I understand. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm aware of, uh, both in my own experience and what the literature tells us about um, our experiences in the medical system, one study that pops up for me is that doctors are less likely to prescribe pain medication um, post-surgery um, at the same level for um, African-Americans and Black people than they are for their white patients. And I'm wondering if you have seen that type of implicit bias play out um, in your journeys with the women and the mothers that you've worked with and what your thoughts are about how to try to mitigate it. Um, it's definitely played out for me personally in my in my births, in my hospital births. Um, a lot of times you know, after you, for example, you have a cesarean birth, um, you will be give, given certain types of medication. In, in, a, in a clinical realm, I guess after maybe day one or day two, they're going to want to stop that medication, whether it be morphine or Dilaudid, which is a really strong um, painkiller. Um, and, you know, I would, I would venture out to say I'm venturing because I don't know. But during those cesarean births, I I can just imagine in terms of the rates of cesarean births and deaths that we're seeing amongst Black women, that they are being a little um, rough with us when they're doing those cesarean births. I'm just going to just go out on the limb. I can't say because obviously I will sleep and um, I have not, you know, that's something even if you're in a cesarean birth, you're not going to see past that sheet on what physicians are doing. Um but it's a major surgery where this baby is coming out. All your organs are coming out. They got to stuff them all back in there and then like close up everything, your uterus, all these different layers, they're sewing back up. Um, it, it's extremely painful for, for some women. And there's no telling in terms of how that procedure is done or who did it, how fast they did it, um, how much pain you're going to be in, right? But clinically, they have this window where you should be off of these pain medications in a certain amount of time. But for you, you may still be in extreme pain. And so you have to advocate for yourself, hey, I need this pain medication longer. However, that physician may be like, mm, but this is the window that we do this and it's time for us to cut this off and try, and try Tylenol and the Motrin kind of rotation situation, which will do nothing for that kind of pain. Or like they may be concerned about sending you home with like um, a stronger pain medication like Percocet or something like that. And so you have to really be able to say words like, I don't feel like my pain management is handled well. I don't feel like you are doing a good job with my pain management. 
you have to say those specific words because those are the those are the words that they have to really take into account when you say my pain is not being managed well i need additional help or sometimes it's time for you to go home from the hospital and and i've had to advocate for women like her pain is not managed what are you going to do to manage it or she needs to stay for another day until you can come up with a proper pain management plan mm. to go home on right and does that is that work did they let you stay the extra day when you when you advocate for that usually it's around insurance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the words of my pain management is not handled well is language for insurance companies to extend you a day there's an issue that's not there's a medical issue that's not being properly managed mm-hmm. but to say things like i'm still in pain this still hurts um and they'll say well what's your pain level from one to ten and sometimes what they'll say is like oh i've heard nurses whisper this even came out in some research that i did well where black mothers will say my pain is like at an eight nine and they'll say oh she doesn't really know what an eight nine feels like or what that really means Mm. you know um i don't think she really understands what she's really saying and so you know i think she's doing better than what she you know because for some reason you know black women if you look at the level of you know humanity that's been stripped away from us even how medical students are trained Mm -hmm. that's ingrained in the history of this country in terms of this I'm doing these procedures on black women, you know? Um, and so what that means is that we don't deserve care. We don't deserve to rest. We don't deserve proper pain management. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of bias that no one would actually say it, but there's so many ways that they've been trained and that they see things that, you know, try and they try and push you out. And well, talk- then you know we play into that because we're we're also taught to not you know be hysterical not mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote um maybe the pain isn't as bad as it seems mm-hmm. um we or will, to suck it up and be a strong black woman yeah mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. We, will, we will downplay our pain right yep and we're mm-hmm. moms now we're supposed to be strong mm-hmm. it's not about us anymore well, and you know what, Kanika, too, um, if I, I want to put a, a, a pin in that, too, because I think that there's something about deference and medical systems and white people as well that can be in, ingrained culturally in us. But but before I go there, I just want to say that same study that I, I just uh, mentioned also indicates that um, that there is this kind of implicit belief uh, by the white doctors, at least who participated in this study, that black people have a higher tolerance of pain, for pain. Yeah, and even 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 though it's a stereotype that the um, the medical uh, providers may not believe, but are still impacted by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think um, I, I love that you gave us language to use. My pain is not being managed well. I mean, hook onto that, listeners. My pain is not being managed well to try to kind of find our voice mm-hmm. in the middle of all of the things that are happening physically, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. 
uh, I think is really very, very important. And I also do think I want to talk a little bit about this whole thing of being deferential to people in authority or not showing your butt or I, I don't know how, what to call it, but I think there is something there um, specifically in our elders and ancestors that didn't push back at medical professionals. And, and so it, it is certainly a skill that is not always properly developed in us um, as black and brown people um, to be able to do. Like this whole notion of second opinion, that's not something that we have done typically as black and brown people until recently, more kind of probably I would say in the last 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something that's been standard practice for some folks, for folks with privilege for longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the things um, that's important for um, talking about new mothers in particular is education as far as knowing yourself what it is to look for so you know when you're in danger mm -hmm. because I think if you're being ignored by a doctor and you're not quite sure what's wrong or you, you're not quite sure what this could potentially mean for example if you have a c-section and you're feeling a little bit tight in the chest that can be something that's potentially fatal. But if you're thinking, oh, I'm just a little bit tight in the chest, I'm okay, because you don't have, you know, a little bit more background knowledge, you may not be, um, uh, you may be too deferential when you go to the hospital. Whereas I think if the more we're able to educate each other um, or um, encourage each other to be educated about, you know, what are the warning signs? What do I need to look for? you know, when I go home after I've had this baby, so that you know that um, this is something that, that I can't allow to be ignored. And also, not I'm not really speaking actually about the mother, because I think it's really important for the people around the mother as well to know so that they can assist and advocate for her. Because I think um, I spent a lot of time with my own husband telling him, I had home births, but telling him that if this happens, then it could be this. If this happens, it could be this. And we talked about this long before I actually had the baby so that he would know um, when it was something we could be like, well, maybe we'll figure this out. Or maybe it's something that we really need to stand our ground and make sure somebody is paying attention. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think it's okay to trust your gut as well. And so if something doesn't feel right, just to pay attention to that. I um, am one of the numerous Black women that have struggled with fibroids or did struggle with fibroids over the years. And I can remember going to a doctor's office and just saying really in passing about Black women being disproportionately impacted by uterine fibroids. And the doctor basically told me I was wrong. Mm. I found another doctor. Like, I, like that's not... That's basic, culturally competent practice. Um, and I wasn't going to allow her to continue to work on me. And, you know, some may say, well, she, you know, she didn't know she wasn't taught or whatever the perfectly logical explanation that was going to be given around that. But for me, as for me, that wasn't going to work for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so not being afraid to do that as well. Some of the other things that pop up in my head around some of this kind of implicit bias and how systemic racism can play a role in your experience um, for those that are doing hospital births or even medical working with medical systems is assumptions about, uh, you know, that hospital gown is a great equalizer and um, in, in some ways. 
my experience has been sometimes there are assumptions around social class, whether the father um, or the another partner is going to be involved um, in this and that and other things that can be kind of um, dehumanizing, if you will. And so um, I, I appreciate you sharing about that. And I was wondering even uh, what your what your thoughts are around people finding their voice and what do you feel like people need to do in order to do that? Or it, how can doulas be helpful in helping women to find, or mothers to find their voices? It's, it's really tough because um, like uh, Mavu was saying earlier, you're in this very vulnerable place between life and death. You're like literally transitioning between worlds, right? And so when I think about myself, um, having all the education in the world, being a doula, doing many births before even becoming pregnant and um, going through my own pregnancy. When I think about a colleague and friend that passed away postpartum and just that she was an epidemiologic intelligence officer, mm. she was um, a decorated CDC officer, and and how she couldn't advocate for herself and how it was hard for me to to stand up and advocate for myself. That's why it's so important, as Mavu said, to treat this space sacred because you're transitioning this woman between two worlds and it's so hard to have to go through this process, give birth, and then speak up for yourself at the same time. Like you should just, somebody should just be taking care of you. Um, so I, I, it's hard for me to say to give women like it's hard for me to tell black women and and I work on different committees like I've worked with the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses a very prominent organization called AWAN um, a nurses organization national nurses organization I work with them on what Mavu was talking about these post birth warning signs where you educate women on you know these are the things that you need to know if these things happen to you, you need to you need to come back to the hospital, right? Hospitals are now really asked to not do readmission mm. for um, for birth postpartum, so they're really trying to limit a woman coming back to the hospital to be readmitted for a postpartum complication because they will get deemed um, insurance wise for that. Mm-hmm. Everything they can to not readmit you. Um, at the same time, they you know they obviously will and they should but they're getting incentives to not readmit you. Um, And so when I was working on this work with A-Line, I was just like, you know, women do speak up for themselves. They are telling you things, you know. I don't think this should be patient-facing. This should be Mm. provider-facing. Educating providers to listen for the cues better from women instead of putting more things for Black women to do. Like, we got enough to do. Everything somehow falls back on us. Mm -hmm. Um, But how can we make this provider facing? How can we make this kind of community and family facing so that, you know, these women are getting a break and that you're helping them? Like we we can't navigate this space by ourselves. We can't. Um, It's not, it's just not how it's meant to be. Just Mm -hmm. from a human rights, human perspective. And so that needs to be challenged. When you go home postpartum, they are rushing you out the door with a pamphlet of information with um, 
trying to check these things off the list. If you feel like this, if you feel lightheaded, if you, and you're trying to get this new baby in the car seat and you're trying to um, sign off on paperwork. And then they have the nerve, like I've had twins in the hospital and they had the nerve to give me two log sheets that I had to fill out two log sheets of every time they pooped, peed, when I nursed, what happened. So I have these two log sheets that I'm responsible for. I'm in all this pain. Um, I have to negotiate like for myself. I'm hungry. This is not the right diet. My pressure's a little high. Why are you, you know, why are you giving me this? And like these, all these things I have to navigate, but also I'm like, I better be a good mom because they're coming in. That nurse is coming in every hour to check these sheets off. And like, what do I look like checking this sheet off <laughs> for two babies? But these are the things that they're asking us to do right after we have a baby. It's insane. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to offer a different perspective of my first child. This was in a, Zimb- in a hospital in Zimbabwe, not long after our independence. But um, as a, a contrast to what happened with Kanika, because this is more mother-centered care that I went through, is the first thing, they don't leave, let you leave the hospital until your milk has come in and your baby is feeding successfully. So if it takes seven days, that's how long you're going to be in the hospital. That's the first thing. The second thing is that so much of your time in the hospital is spent making sure that you are safe and comfortable caring for the baby. They even have a whole session where they take all the moms and you learn how to bathe your baby, how to hold your baby. They're not doing those things for you, but there's someone there teaching you and helping you do these things because there's this understanding culturally that a mother has to be taught to mother first of all and secondly that the the hospital is taking the space of where mothers and grandmothers and aunties and sisters and so on used to be in that space now it's almost like you know we're gonna yank this baby out of you and then throw you both on the street So, so you you took us exactly where I wanted to go, Mavo, and I, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about um, traditional the traditional African perspective or um, and around childbirth. You talked about it a little bit, but just unpack it for us, and even how that informs your work with mothers. Um, okay, it, it, it's most of. Um my work with mothers, I'm trying to lean more towards education and sharing the information that I have. So I think one of the things that I have learned helping mothers here is that there's no space in which someone has decided or thought to teach mothers how to mother. And we've been separated, um, at least American families are separated from the older women in their families, because I know most of my family, the the elders are somewhere in the South. Um, Children and grandchildren are growing up away from great grandmothers and so on. But there is also a sense for most Africans that children are our wealth. And we take that very seriously. Motherhood is sacred because you kind of are the person who works hand in hand with God to make sure that we have descendants. And so the care I think that we give is holistic because it's built into the family structure. Um, There's no question about who is going to help you after you have a baby. 
it's something that's already built into the family structure. And so there's no gaps. When a woman in Zimbabwe has her first baby, she goes, she moves back with her parents for the first three months. That says so much, as I was saying, when I was saying when my daughter had a baby, um, I was caring for my baby so she could care for her baby. So it's just that um, inherent knowledge that a woman has to be in a safe space um, to be healthy. The other thing I think um, for postpartum here that is um, not emphasized as it much might be in uh, African societies is that the whole family is considered postpartum, not just the mom. So if there's a dad present, then support is being given to the father by the men in the community. Um, grandparents are supporting each other. You know, the in-laws are supporting the mother and her family. So if the mother and her family are caring for the mother, the in-laws are the ones who are bringing the food and everything that is needed. So it's kind of this kind of trickling down and everybody caring for everybody. And everything has become, everything is more fragmented here where, you know, the mom is one thing, the baby is another thing, her partner is another thing. Nobody's really looking at supporting um, the whole family. And I think my passion is really trying to get groups of women and people to start thinking about how do I rebuild those things within my little family, within my community? You know, I encourage people, if your daughter has a close friend, start talking to them now about, you know, you guys should help each other when you have babies. When someone's getting married, you need to start asking your maid of honor and your bridesmaids, would you guys take a week off of work when I have my baby? You know, those are the things we start, we need to start rebuilding in. And I, and, you know, um, being married into an African-American family, uh, African-Americans talk a lot about what they've lost. There's so much you haven't lost. There's so much that is just, you just need to reach out. You know, it's really close. And I've learned so much from my African-American family um, about the importance of these things. Because there's a lot of things that are still there that people just need to... Spend a minute and talk to your grandmother. If you're lucky enough to have a great-grandmother, spend a minute talking to her. And you'll find that it hasn't been that long that we haven't had the support system. That You know, a minute ago, we weren't even allowed in their hospitals. What were we doing then? Mm. So, you know, those are things. And that's not just in America. That's in Africa, too. We weren't sure. allowed in their hospitals. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I like so much about what you said. But one of the things that really uh, resonates with me is really rebuilding the things that who that are really who we inherently are that we are inherently communal we are inherently um uh, about taking care of he ain't heavy or she ain't heavy or right. they ain't heavy they're my um my brother sister etc and so really i'm not forgetting those and and then reclaiming them and holding tight to to, to them as well in in that process and not forgetting each each other um, or, you know, I think, and I don't know if this is true, I've not given birth, let me say that, but this notion of not fully remembering all of the pain that one goes through in the childbirth years, I mean, in the childbirth process, I wonder um, if that also, um, if, if we held more tightly to that, if that would help us to be more responsive and empathetic with each other um, as people are um, postpartum. And walking through that process too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So my guess is that by hearing both you talk, Malvo and Kanika, that people could be inspired to think about becoming a doula. And I'm wondering if you would mind sharing a little bit about, um, I know you, one of you came to it more organically and the other more formally, and then, uh, but what the process is of becoming a doula and what people would need to do in order to, uh, to be able to help mothers in this way. Sure. Well, I would just start off by saying that if you are supporting moms, <laughs> you are a doula. Um, you don't have to necessarily have these formal trainings um, in society. Someone found this awesome way to commodify help that we should just have, right? Mm-hmm. That, like Mavu said, is just ingrained in our family. So if you if you supported your friend, if you've been there for your sister or someone in that way, you have performed the work of a doula. Doulas are now a very hot thing, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we're, we're to the point where we're working really hard in policy and administration to make sure it, it, it's another skilled, almost uh, community health worker model where um Black women can get paid for the work that they've done because so for so long, mm-hmm. um, there's only been one certifying inter- uh, uh, organization, and that's DONA International, Doulas of North America International. Um, that's the known certifying um, organization, one of the only um, that kind of holds the is the gatekeeper, if you will to being able to get insurance coverage. And, they, and they've had held that space for a long time. We're now recognizing that um, while Dona International, you know, I love the training I've gotten from their awesome skills, but we are starting to recognize that that, that doesn't necessarily meet the needs of black women. Um, and there's so many things specific to black women that we need to focus on. So there are many other doula training programs led by Black women. The issue is they don't necessarily get covered by insurance, right? That that stays within that donor realm. So some of us have gotten both certifications and we're really working hard um, on the policy realm. There's a lot happening in different states to make sure that Black organizations are allowed that same privilege that donor has, um, that if you, you don't have to have both certifications. Um, the process is very different for different organizations. And a, a general model is that you would probably take a weekend training, um, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday training, um, and you would get your skills, a curriculum, a book, um, resources that you will do three to four. You will support three to four families for free, whether that is birth or postpartum. Um, and then there's like certificate, there's there's a certification process in terms of reporting on those births, getting those births um, or those postpartum visits signed off on. Um, For both there's, for birth doulas, there's definitely lactation and birth classes. Um, There is lactation for the postpartum doulas as well. Yeah. And then there's lactation for the postpartum doulas as well. So you need to, you need to find your separate um, hours for lactation and your separate hours for childbirth education. Mm-hmm. round off your um, training. Can you share some about the Black Women's Health um, Imperative? Absolutely. The Black Women's, I'm the director of maternal and child health for the Black Women's Health Imperative, which is an organization 
we're coming up on our 40th year anniversary, um, started on Spelman's campus that really focuses on the emotional, mental, physical, financial um, health of Black women. So we have decided really based on all the things that Mavu has said and just looking at what's happening in the postpartum realm, we've partnered with NYX. NYX is an intimate apparel line that's also very interested in the postpartum process. And they have a postpartum line now. They've been focusing on um, campaigns to normalize the postpartum experience for women, what, what, what you look like even postpartum. And so they have funded us to start our own postpartum doula training program, which Mavu is a facilitator and mentor for that program. Um, and we've decided to make that program a year long because um, three days is not enough mm-hmm. um, to, to have a training for three days and be like, okay, now go out and find your clients. Um, it's, it's a very low success rate that women will turn around and then complete their certification. Um, during COVID, we wanted to provide the opportunity to fund Black women for free because the trainings are an expense anywhere from $800 to $1,800 by the time you've taken your additional classes. So we provided 20 women with scholarships to have um, a year-long training process with support and mentorship from skilled doulas like Mavu. Um, and then every month we meet and we have um, a training, um, a two-hour training every month. So they'll have, they do have their three-day training that they've had supported by the National Black Doulas Association. And then we've continued with that training and um, they have a two-hour facilitation training every month to go in deeper on nutrition, deeper on lactation. Maternal mental health is so important. Um, so we, we do a few sessions on maternal mental health um, also on um, just just how to take care of mom and baby and infant, how to take care of the entire family, and what are those postpartum warning signs? Mm. How do you advocate for mothers? How do you give mothers that language? So um, we spent a year supporting them with mentorship to get their certification, you know, wanting to increase the birth worker health force um, in this way. Yeah. It's helpful. Thank you. I forgot to ask this. Um, and so I, I want to ask this and then I want to, uh, then I have one last question. Um, how has COVID changed the game at all as far as your work is concerned? Um, well, I can say for myself that um, COVID was really hard because um, I have some high risk um, people within my own family. So I actually did not see anyone, but I spent a lot more time doing um, virtual support and virtual classes. Um, so that that was a major, I, I did almost very little as far mm-hmm. as seeing people in person during COVID. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also um, it wasn't just my own family. I was worried about um, accessing people with their newborns you know, at a time when we didn't know what the effect was going to be on the mom or a little baby. Sure. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean, from what I've heard, cause I don't, I haven't practiced. I, I did my last birth as a doula, I think formally in 2018 or 19. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's just be- because I was pregnant with twins and sure. 
all of that. Um, but what, what I can say I have heard is in the postpartum space, in some ways, um, it's really stepped up a notch because you have women who would normally go back to their families. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, grandma, um, uh-huh. it was too dangerous. So in some senses, I've heard postpartum doulas become really busy because there is no uh-huh. one to really step in for that mom. Um, especially if she's single or she just doesn't have a lot of support. Um, and then like Mavu said, you've seen the virtual visits. I did do two virtual births um, via phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The, the virtual space for me um, actually opened up something that I didn't expect would happen, which is I started having friends and relatives in Zimbabwe who had babies who'd say, listen, your mom said you're doing this can we talk on the phone or can we zoom in? So it kind of made things a little bit more international than they would have been. That's awesome. What's your, what's both of your favorite part of working with black mothers? Um, I would honestly say, I feel like I'm doing God's work. I feel like it's such mm-hmm. a privilege. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I feel like I'm taking part of um, something that's, gone on as long as people have been around and will go on as long as people have been around. So I feel very privileged to be part of that. Mm, that's awesome. I agree with you about that. What about you, uh, Dr. Harris? For me, um, I'm just always healed when when I do the work. I get so much more out of it. It's just one of those moments in life that, yeah, I think my boo saying when you do God's work, for me, I can feel it. Yes. You know, yeah. You are in that zone and a space. It's it's a meditative space. Mm. It's a space where everything stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and, and you're holding all of that for another family. Um, and usually for me, I've gained so much community and new friends from that work because once you hold space for someone in, in that way. You're essentially family after that. Right, so, right. Um, for me, coming from an extremely small family, mm-hmm. there's not many of us left. That just gives me so much life and connection. Lovely. It's beautiful. So my last question is a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed. And people, some people like it and some people do not. So you may have your own reaction to it. Uh, but But it's been informative. What's the one thing that you believe that white people can do to to decrease the mortality rates for Black women as it relates to um, their maternal health? My boo's eyes are big. <laughs> because, because she said some people don't like that question. I saw that question and I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's, it's um, this is what I will say is I, I, I understand how it, can be experienced as privileging the voice or the work of white people to make things better for us. And I think white people need to step up and do what they can do in order to disrupt the the system of racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are uniquely qualified not to take care of them in the process. That's that's not the meaning of the question, uh, but to share what we need, um, and to to be articulate around that, 
so they can come from an informed place so it doesn't just end up being performative or silly allyship mm-hmm. um i've always felt like just get out my way please <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Because I feel like we, we know what to do. We got this. I mean, Dr. Rachel Hardiman's research shows that when um, Black physicians deliver Black babies, they are more likely to survive. You okay, know? so I, I heard that, Kanika. I've heard that before. And my mm-hmm. first thought was, why has no one gone to jail for killing Black babies? Because that's the reverse side of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, we so know why. get out, get out the way. It's get not just, way. it's not just get out of the way. It's like if I have a splinter in my hand and I have a pair of tweezers and you keep slapping the tweezers out of my hand, just let me use my tweezers. So it's not just step out of the way, but stop actively trying to stop mm-hmm. me from helping myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great answer, even if you didn't like the question so no, much. I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I and I also feel like you know we're talking about anti-racism and anti-racist practice. Let's be clear: when we say anti-racist practices, it's not for us to figure out how to make white people anti-racist. That is not mm-hmm. our job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you follow the research and the work, it's about them figuring it out for themselves mm-hmm. and educating them. Mm-hmm. And so I think we get caught and we're, we're now caught in this cycle. Now we got to educate and, and make our places anti-racist, make all this stuff anti-racist. And it's just like, no, this is their framework for them to figure it out. Um, they created it. Yeah. I, I want you to figure that out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I want to take something off of our plate so we can just focus on our own. And while you're figuring that out, let us do what we know works. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it. So I I just want to black when black physicians deliver black babies, they black babies have a higher chance of living. That was in the Washington Post. So, you know, they don't put it out. If Well, and I if, if I might, if I may just take a little bit of mic privilege, I believe when black doulas are in the room as well, um, that Black babies and mothers have a higher chance of making it too. Yeah, there, there's definitely research out there that shows that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for your time and um, just being with me in this way. I am confident that our listeners are going to benefit greatly from uh, what you shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com. Custom-made, personalized cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com. And use the coupon code being the dot for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.